Well, this morning when I was driving here, I was listening to NPR's uh, morning station, and um, they were having the trivia with the Puzzle Master Will Shores. Did any of you hear that this morning? One of the answers to the question was Trivial Pursuit, so I thought I'd play a little 80s pop culture or trivia with you, see if you could get one when we started off this morning. Where was and from whom was this phrase? Check your egos at the door. I'll repeat it. <laughs> Gives you time to get those gears working. Maybe you haven't had your caffeine yet. Check your egos at the door. Yes. Excuse me? Not Lou Reed, although I like Lou Reed a lot. He may have been part of this, however. That's a clue. Yes. Getting closer, all right? Third more try. Going once? Going twice? We are the world. Woo! Give that woman a hand. Check your egos at the door. Michael Jackson, in clearly a wiser portion of his life than the rest of it has lived out, emblazoned that over the entryway as all those super-duper megastars, of which I believe Lou Reed was actually one, entered and sang that song that ended up raising millions of dollars for famine relief. Now, We Are the World was a one-off, one-time, one-shot, what they call supergroup, musical supergroup. And that was actually one of the few ones that worked. Supergroups are notorious in the history of pop music for not delivering on what they have promised. Probably the first of the real rock music supergroups was a group called Blind Faith. Anyone remember them? They had some, oh, all right, okay. They had some good songs, but they were not nearly as good as the bands they came from. Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker, Stevie Winwood. That's back when he was Stevie Winwood because he was still pretty young back then. I think he was under 20. Blind Faith only did about one album together, and the history of pop music is littered with great ideas of supergroups that turn out to be absolutely less than the sum of their parts. There's a lot of reasons that supergroups don't turn out to fulfill their promise. It's too much planning in a supergroup, maybe even too much talent, and not enough inspiration. I started with supergroups today because that's kind of how I feel about this Sunday's movie. This past week, I saw Evening, and it is an embarrassment of actress riches. Vanessa Redgrave, Glenn Close, Natasha Richardson, who is, many of you know, Vanessa Redgrave's daughter, Meryl Streep, Claire Danes, Tony Collette, and it suffers from all the supergroup problems. <laughs> You're not even sure who to watch. There's too much fame. There's too much beautiful glory. There's too many decades and indeed centuries of great acting talent up on that stage. And it's almost as if they got the first one, maybe Vanessa Redgrave signed on, and they got all those other actresses that said, you want to be in a movie with Vanessa Redgrave, and you want to be in a movie with Glenn Close, and you could see the momentum building, the momentum building. But it's sort of like a donut. All these stars are rated out the outside, maybe all the beautiful little sprinkles. If you're a Homer Simpson fan, you always got to have your donut with sprinkles. But at the center, a hole. Not much there. The movie was much less than the sum of its parts. The acting isn't awful, but I got to think at the end of the movie that at least how I felt about it, I didn't really know any of the characters. I didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. I didn't know what motivated them 
suffer and struggle and have joy. And I also have to say, and this may be heresy for some of you who love the actress, and she is amazing, Vanessa Redgrave gives the least convincing performance of anyone dying I have ever seen. (laughs) If you have ever been around someone's deathbed, and I've done hospital chaplaincy, so I've been there quite a lot, and some of you I know have been in that place as well with your loved ones, with people you know, and maybe caring for people in that situation. There's a lot of different things that happen. Some of them aren't pretty. And Vanessa Redgrave just seems to be sort of peacefully sleeping in a morphine coma, so-called, but at the same time she comes out of it every five minutes or so to seemingly walk around or interact with her daughters. It just doesn't make sense. The characters don't seem to develop as people as much as they seem to play their assigned roles. Rarely, and this is where the movie critic part of me is going to come to an end, Rarely have I been more bored on the sacred terrain, and I mean it is sacred terrain of someone's deathbed or seeing someone's deathbed. And actually, it does bring to mind one thing I want to recommend for you. Some of you might know the play or the movie that was on HBO called Wit with the absolutely luminous Emma Thompson, written by Margaret Edson. If you want to see a beautiful, stirring, just like sometimes soul-squeezing understanding of what someone goes through as they die, please see wit. Save your money. You'll spend less going to the DVD store than you will going to see Evening. Save your money and see wit. In Evening itself, I'm just going to give you a very brief overview. There is a dying woman played by Vanessa Redgrave. Her name is Anne. And she drifts in and out of this morphine fog. And she says at one point the name Harris. Harris and I killed Buddy. Now, I'm not going to solve that mystery for you because I don't want to spend too much more time on the movie, so you can see it if you want to, and you can find out what that is all about. And the movie then ends up going back and forth in time. Her daughters listen to what might seem this dying confession, and it's not nearly as awful as we killed him. They didn't murder him. It goes back and forth between the young bohemian Anne, who was at a rich wasp family wedding in Newport, Rhode Island, over 50 years ago. Now, the movie does raise all kinds of really interesting issues, It just doesn't develop them, in my opinion. Now, versus the movie Ratatouille, which I preached on last week, which, frankly, I had about three sermons, three messages worth of material that I had to leave on the cutting room floor just to fit it into a half hour's worth of preaching last week. I found that evening didn't quite give me that much. Yes, there was death, and yes, there was forgiveness, and yes, there was family, and these are all things I've preached about actually quite a lot in the last six weeks, and things I'm going to preach about in the coming weeks, and about the coming month, and frankly, I didn't really want to waste it on evening. (laughs) To be completely blunt with you. But, there was one thing. There was one thing. As the film, and as her life winds down, Anne utters these words. Which are the mistakes that you forget? And which are the mistakes that they'll be talking about for years? Which are the mistakes that you forget? And which are the mistakes that they'll be talking about for years? So this morning I want to talk a little bit about mistakes in our own life, the lives that surround us, the mistakes we can see, and the mistakes indeed inside of ourselves, and the ways that those things might be greater openings to blessing and wisdom. But first I want to share with you a couple of the great necessary things in our lives, at least some people think they're necessary, that turned out as the result of absolute mistakes. Did you know that the potato chip 
is a mistake. In 1853, there was a vengeful chef who got tired of a customer coming to his restaurant and saying, you slice these potatoes too thick. I'll show you. I'm going to slice the potato as thin as I can and give it to you. He liked it. The complaining patron did. And hence, the potato chip was born. Penicillin, as some of you know, well, that came from an unclean Petri dish that 25 years later, in the 1850s, someone picked up that research and developed it, developed that drug that has saved millions of lives worldwide and started the antibiotic revolution. And finally, Viagra. Did you know that originally, Viagra was being tested as a heart drug in a small Welsh town? And well, they found out it didn't help hearts too much, but it had some interesting side effects. I'll leave it at that. There are the blessings of mistakes all around us. There are the blessings of the mistakes that we receive, and there are the blessings of the mistakes that we make. I'm going to tell you about two of my mistakes from, not this pulpit, but from the pulpit over the years. The first big mistake I made was actually about a woman who had just died. I was in the pulpit of my internship church doing something real simple, you'd think. The announcements one Sunday, and I was talking about that in three days from now, back in this very space, or that very space, we would be having a memorial service. And you know what I did? I forgot the woman's name complete blank out. And so I did the only thing that came into my panicked, absolutely panicked brain. I pretended I was choking. <laughs> water, water. And then I gamefully, gamefully tried to make it back to the pulpit to announce the woman's name and still drawing an absolute blank. <laughs> Overcome, I had to sit down. The lead minister got up and said the name of the woman. Said the name of the woman. <laughs> Six months later, when I was feeling a lot more confident in who I was as a minister, I came clean to the entire congregation. And then in my first ministry, actually a meaningful, a meaningful mistake. I was talking about my path to ministry on that day, about some of the things that all of us know in life of leaving sometimes the well-known and the beautiful and the wonderful behind in search of that larger vision, but the sometimes unknown. And in my first ministry, and this is in my first few months, I was so focused on the text. I wanted to get every word right because I had spent, I don't want to tell you how many hours it used to take me to write those messages early on in my first ministry. Man, would I struggle and suffer and sweat and so every word, every word had to be right. And as a result, I wasn't doing a lot of this. I wasn't looking out. I wasn't looking out at the people. And I was talking, and this is talking about myself in the third person, and saying, imagine a young Jewish man who goes and tells his grandmother that he has had a call to go to graduate school for religion. Except I was talking about a different word for graduate school for religion. And so I said, imagine, again, I was focused on the text right down here, so sure I wanted to get it right, had to be right, had to be right, had to be perfect. Imagine a young Jewish man who goes and tells his Jewish grandmother that he is going to cemetery. 
the word seminary, obviously. And they did exactly what you did. Burst out laughing. And it was the greatest thing that could have happened to me in the first few months of my ministry. Mistakes are inevitable. Imperfection is taken for granted. I needed to make my first mistake. And I am red-haired and fair-skinned. And so when I said cemetery, man, I lit up like a jack-o'-lantern on Halloween. But the great thing that happened is I saw that they were laughing, and I started laughing myself. And for the first real time, I mean, I looked up at times, it wasn't always down here, but I recognized that this is where the relationship really is in preaching, between us, eye to eye, face to face, and that mistakes being inevitable, you might as well ride that wave into a deeper, funny communion with each other. That mistake was such a wonderful thing, and that laughter still resonates in my life to this day, to have the opportunity to screw up, to have the opportunity, the blessed opportunity to screw up. There's a guy named Dan Quisenberry, who was a very unorthodox relief pitcher, very successful relief pitcher for the Kansas City Royals many years ago, and he was a very kind of irregular, not just unorthodox on the mound, but he was a poet, and he used to do crossword puzzles in the, uh, in the, in, in the locker room when the other guys were sort of blaring heavy metal music. He was a deeply sort of sensitive guy, and he died very young at the age of 45 of a brain tumor, and he was very open about his dying process. And he talked about, while he was still playing, one day many years ago, Normally, when a pitcher's not going well, they talk about getting his mechanics back in line, throwing from the right arm slot, throwing from the right way. He's normally dropped down too much or come up too high. And it normally goes, I'm trying to find the flaw in my delivery. But Dan Quisenberry had a better understanding. He, who was never a picture-perfect pitcher, said, I have always found a delivery in my flaw. I have always found a delivery in my flaw. Notice how this inverts sometimes the way we talk about solving problems. It is not a matter of the baseline being perfection, and we either head back toward it or away from it if we are in error. The assumption is different, and I found a delivery in my flaw. The assumption is that we all start out as imperfect, wonderful stuff, And then we learn to work with what we have and through them find our own particular understanding and articulation of excellence. I once knew a pastoral counselor, a guy who had done 25, 30 years of counseling with couples. Counseling with couples who had had deep, deep problems in their marriage. And he always said the one thing that he saw that was the most damaging thing was the assumption that the marriage was supposed to work so well that if you start with the assumption that things are going to be screwing up and that still we can find health together, still the couple could find health together, you can always make progress that way. But if baseline is our perfection, we'll never reach it. We've set up for ourselves a standard that is unattainable. I like the way the Bible talks about this. It doesn't talk about perfection, but in the first of the two creation stories, some of you might know this, God creates and there's no Adam and Eve and there's no fall and there's no sin and there's no serpent. First creation story is a story of blessing, basically. It's a wonderful story. 
And after each part, each day of that creation comes to be, God's word, some of you know that, simple Hebrew word, tov. Not perfect, not flawless, not sinless, not without taint, tov. Good. That's all it means. And it was good. What a different thing from the expectations of thinking that somehow we should be without mistakes. Some of you know the story. I've shared it before. But I want to tell it to you again today. It's a story that originally comes from the Hindu tradition. It's a story about one pot that is whole and perfect. It serves as a water jug. And one pot that has broken. It has a crack right down the middle of it. And these two pots are tethered together, sort of if you've seen in pictures from rural villages. You'll see they're tethered together by a pole and someone carries these two pots over their shoulder. And every single day in this particular village, long ago and far away, this is the way all folk tales are, the man who owns them goes down to the village well in the center of town to get the water. And he fills up the whole bucket and he fills up the cracked bucket. And well, you can see what happens. On the walk back up to his home, on that dirt path that leads from the village back to where he lives, the one that is whole holds its water. And the one that has a crack in it loses probably three quarters of its water every single day when this happens. And months go by and years go by. And because this is a fairy tale, the cracked pot has conscious and one day asks, one day asks the man who owns it, why do you continue to use me? Why would you not untie me from the end of the pole on the other side providing the balance and get another bucket that is whole and perfect like the other one? It says this at the end of the journey one day when once again the cracked bucket has released almost all of its contents. And the man says, we're going to turn around and I want you to look back down the path from whence we have come. And on the one side of the path, that's the cracked bucket, like I said, mistakes always happen. <laughs> on the one, I'll try and find a blessing in there by next week. And on the one side of that dirt path where the bucket has leaked its water over and over and over again, over months and years, along that side of the path are growing absolutely beautiful, resplendent flowers. Not on the other side of the path, because there was no water being spilled there. Through your cracks, the man says, you have allowed, indeed you have gifted, these particular flowers to grow. What you thought was your mistake has allowed life to come to be. We are all, each of us in our own ways, cracked pots. We are all, each of us, in our own ways, watering life through our mistakes that will bless other people. We may know them. We may not know these things. There's an old story about the difference between heaven and hell. What makes the difference is this. A man had a vision of what hell was like and he traveled there one day and he saw people of all different races and the worldwide men, women, children sitting around a big, 
big pot of stew. A wonderful pot of food. But the problem was, and this is why hell was hell, their arms would not bend at the elbows. Their arms would not bend at the elbows. And so they were sitting around this beautiful pot of food, but they could not get the spoons that they had at the ends of their hands back into their mouths. And it was too hot to eat directly from that pot of food. And so they sat there starving. And then in the next vision, heaven was seen, except everyone was happy. Unlike hell where they were sitting around unhappy, dour, sad, hungry, the people in heaven were all happy, but they all had the same kinds of arms. They all had the same kinds of arms and the same spoons that wouldn't reach. But in heaven, everyone was well fed and satisfied. And do you know why? In heaven, they have learned to feed each other. They have learned to take their spoon at the ends of their arms that will not bend and take them and feed the people next to them. Our mistakes call us into community with each other. Our mistakes call us into community with each other because we recognize then that we are in need. We are in need so much of our lives for nurture, for love, for compassion. This past weekend, I was blessed to spend some time with my little nieces. They're in need, but because they are in need, they give off so much joy. When we are in need, in a healthy way, there is, of course, codependency and all that, but when we can healthfully talk about what we need and what our mistakes are and what our perfections are, then we are able to be in true community with each other. The opposite is something like what Kathleen Norris said, who's one of my favorite spiritual writers. She wrote, and again, this is sort of traditional poetic bombast, she wrote that successful people can't write poems. Successful people can't write poems. And she said it's for this reason, that successful people won't let them get themselves get down at eye level, at dirt level, to the ground. It's interesting to remember that this is what humility means. The word humility comes from the Latin word humus, dirt. Literally, literally, if you are humble, you are down to earth. And being humble, we are able to experience our mistakes not as the kinds of things that might separate us from each other, but as the opportunity to engage in a deeper understanding of who our lives are. This summer season right now, we recognize that a lot of us might be in the midst of or maybe coming back from or having the opportunity to take some vacation time. And originally, the first vacation, well, mythologically at least, was the Sabbath. The Sabbath day that we still practice here together. And the idea of the Sabbath day is this, that you should be good for nothing. I mean that. Think of it. Good for nothing. And think about the ways in which that word, that phrase is often talked about. You, Chris, are a good for nothing. Which actually couldn't be more different from Chris in the colloquial sense. She's one of the most effective people I know. But the point is that. Sorry to pick on you. One of the most important things about being good for nothing is that for a time, we can just sit down into our lives in that Sabbath moment. 
not have to worry about efficiency, not have to worry about where our mistakes are leading us, not have to worry about getting the job done, but to experience Sabbath is to experience just letting go. Even in matters of spirituality sometimes, we talk about steps and we talk about purpose-driven lives, and these are all things I believe in. But what I also believe in is the cult of spiritual inefficiency. Doing good-for-nothing things. It's parts of the gifts of what the writer James Atlas talks about, the ability to wander on a summer day like this. And I encourage you to do this today. I encourage you to do this today. Wander lonely on a cloud. Wander lonely on a cloud. Don't worry about getting things done, at least for an hour. Give yourself time in which you're not thinking, am I getting done when I need to get done? Can I take time that is wasteful? Can I be in the midst of time that is abundant? And do I not have to worry about doing, doing, doing? Be spiritually inefficient this summer. Be spiritually abundant this summer. Make mistakes. Do things that you have no idea why you're doing them. Have the opportunity to recognize the cracked pot within yourself and recognize that through those cracks you are giving blessing back to life if we take the time to do it. And this comes back around to the issue of being in a supergroup. There is no formula for wisdom. There is no one perfect recipe for saying this is genius. That's the issue with the supergroup. A supergroup, and this is the secret, a supergroup is never as much or more than the sum of its parts because of this. Its members are all geniuses already. I'm sure you guys know this from playing with people over the years. When you're really with a band, maybe at your workplace, maybe you're an artist, maybe you're working with other people, and you've got the opportunity to be with them, not because you're all geniuses, but because you know each other because you're working in synchronicity, because you can jam together, because you know each other's moves. The problem with supergroups is that they already got all the moves down. What we're doing here at Wellsprings, what I hope that you can do in each of your lives, is find that place where you belong, where you do not have to be perfect, where you have the blessing of making mistakes and learning from them and bringing new visions to bear and then going on and making more mistakes. I wish you an abundance of mistakes. I wish you to know the cracks within yourselves, and I wish that you will know the light that will always shine in those cracks, if we will see them. Amen. And may you live in blessing.